Hello and welcome to the Securities Compliance Podcast presented by the National Society of Compliance Professionals, where it is our mission to help you put compliance in context. I'm your host, Patrick Hayes, partner at the Calfee Law Firm, and today we begin by shouting out to all of our incredible listeners and sending a hearty thank you for being patient as we continue to get you some great content. Due to some scheduling items, we've had to shift a few things around, but we are very, very excited about our summer lineup of shows coming up. And first on that list is a Lessons from the Front Lines episode on the new SEC cybersecurity rule. Two things on that. One, we've talked about these shows before, but for some of our new listeners, the Lessons from the Frontline series focus on real-life, tough-to-tackle subjects that other industry professionals and regulators have faced on the front lines of our industry. And normally, we wouldn't do a Lessons from the Frontlines episode on a proposed rule, but given that this proposed rule has been out for over a year, and the fact that many elements of the rule proposal represent challenges already facing SEC-registered firms, we felt that those same firms would do well to hear from our panel of experts on how they can best navigate some of those specific challenges. The second is that in order to do a comprehensive look at the topic, consider this episode like a double feature, or for those listening still old enough to remember tapes and CDs, or maybe even records, Consider this the extra added awesome bonus content at the end of the album. We really wanted to give this incredible group the time and focus they needed to discuss such a mission critical area in our industry. And so, without further ado, let's dive back into the SEC cybersecurity rule proposal. As we move into the interview section of today's show, we are really going to be digging into one of the most highly publicized and uh, challenging, I think, areas in the compliance world today. A really significant topic area that continues to garner headlines every day. Beginning in on February 9th of last year, the SEC proposed its comprehensive cyber and data security rule proposal. And there are so many different things that have been tied to this, including comment periods and reopening of comment periods. We're going to get to talk about all of it and provide all of you, our wonderful listeners, with a, a really full, comprehensive look into this area. We have some absolutely fantastic additional persons on today's show because it is such a special one. And we've got a great group group of experts here to help walk us through everything surrounding the topic of cybersecurity um, and related topics like data privacy and information security. I'm, I'm also very pleased to be joined uh, by um, a, a co-host uh, on today's show, someone who you all may remember did such a, an excellent job of uh, serving in that role of, of host last year for the SEC Marketing Rule Masterclass, Mr. Carlo DeFlorio. Carlo, thank you so much. Uh, for joining me here again uh, on the NSCP Compliance and Context podcast. Uh, great to have you with us and very excited to dive into this topic with you. Great to be here with you, Patrick. Looking forward to it. Thanks. Yeah. So I would also like maybe, and, and Carlo, I know we've got a couple different folks from ACA Group here, but would love to hear who else is going to be joining us on, on today's show. Great. Thanks, Patrick. Well, uh, first of all, from ACA, we're just delighted to participate with you and Amber and NSCP to present the podcast. Today, On from Team ACA, we have Mike Papasina and Christine Tuttle-Lewis. 
Uh, Mike and Christine are leaders in our cyber and risk practice, which is comprised of about 70 or so cyber experts and specialists. Um, we're really looking forward to taking that expertise and diving into the details and sharing benchmarking insights and effective practices and some of the challenges of the, the new rules. Um, let me turn it over briefly to Christine and Mike to introduce yourselves. Hi, thanks. My name is Christine Tetherly-Lewis. I'm a managing director here at ACA Aponics, the cyber division of ACA Group. I've been with the firm for about five years, um, and the majority of my IT career has been in this space, actually, in the registered investment advisor space. So, uh, really excited to talk today about this rule and what that can mean for um, you know our, our firms and our clients as well. Thanks, Christine. Hi, I'm Mike Papacina. I'm a partner here at ACA Aponics. I oversee service and delivery for our cybersecurity and risk division. I joined ACA shortly after ACA Group acquired ACA Aponics. I've been with the firm eight years. Uh, prior to that, um, I spent 16 years in financial services at Goldman Sachs in various roles in technology, um, governance, risk, and compliance. Um, so again, happy to be here to talk about the rule and all, all things cyber and information security risk. Thank you very much, Christine, and thank you very much, Mike. Uh, we are so, so pleased to be able to, to have you on the show today, and thank you for being so generous with your time. Uh, I'm also incredibly pleased uh, to welcome in uh, a guest that uh, many of our listeners will certainly uh, remember. She's been on the show a few different times, including to talk about this uh, specific topic. So I'm very pleased to welcome in Miss Amber Allen with uh, Fairview and Fairview Cyber, fellow NSCP board member and uh, former Publications Committee uh, colleague, although she she's still leading <laughs> the NSC Publications Committee and doing a fantastic job of pushing out wonderful content. But uh, Amber, thank you so much for coming back on the show. Maybe tell our listeners just a, a little bit about um, your practice over at Fairview. Thank you, Patrick. It's great to be here. So I serve as the General Counsel and Executive Vice President here at Fairview which provides regulatory compliance services to investment advisors. I also lead the Fairview Cyber Team, which focuses on regulatory consulting related to cybersecurity specifically. And as you mentioned, I'm still actively involved as the co-chair of the NSCP Currents and current board member as well. Thank you so much. Thank you. So much to all of you for being here, and and thanks, Carlo, for all of your help in in doing the uh, in doing the co-hosting duties with me. As I um, as I mentioned at the top, right. So we're going to really dive in here, and and what's great about this podcast and, and the form that it's going to be taking is, you know, we're this is one of those lessons from the front lines uh, podcast episodes where you know we're going to be talking with folks just like yourself that are truly working on the front lines in this specific subject matter area and can provide excellent feedback, right, and and experiences in the types of issues that you're seeing within your firms and specifically thinking about how those firms may have to adjust given some of these rule proposals that are out there in the cybersecurity space. And so maybe let's start, I'll, I'll do a quick uh, kind of table reset here on on the topic area broadly, and then would love to kick it over to, to you, Carlo, and get some of your thoughts just as a you know former regulator and, and having to deal with, with this subject matter area. But uh, as I mentioned, on February 9th, 2022, the SEC proposed its first comprehensive cyber and, and data security rules under 20649 of the Investment Advisors Act and 3882 under the Investment Company Act. And really, these proposed cyber rules codify the requirement for advisors 
to maintain comprehensive cybersecurity policies and procedures and to adhere to certain disclosure and uh, record keeping requirements. Whereas previously, I think, you know, the SEC would have been relying on regulations, SID, Reg SP, risk alerts, guidance, stuff like that, you know, and even enforcement actions uh, uh, from time to time to kind of set expectations. I think these proposed cyber rules would not only increase some of the existing responsibilities, but really reflect a change in kind of the rulemaking methodology here, moving from, again, more kind of principles-based to more rule-based and a little bit more prescriptive as to what uh, firms really need to be doing in this area. And so, you know, I mentioned them a moment ago, but beginning back in, you know, the early 2000s with Reg SID and and the FACT Act and the Red Flags Rule then in 2011, you've got, you know, the Reg SP stuff that happened in the very late 90s and, and early uh, to, uh, to, in June 2000. And then you continue to see this evolution of the cybersecurity space over a period of time really in the kind of 2013, 14, 15 timeframe, you start to really see an increased focus from the SEC, adding it to their list of annual priorities, talking about in 2014, there was a cybersecurity initiative. Specifically, the results of that were published then in 2015. Um, and then you continue to have risk alerts, right? In September of 2015, another risk alert in August of 2017. And all of that kind of leads to this continued focus from the regulators. And so, with that, I'd love to kick it over to you, Carlo, because look, you you wore that hat for a really long time, did an exceptional job in your service at the SEC. I'd love to hear from your perspective how you think the staff is is thinking about this issue and you know how it's evolved to, to where it is now. Great. Thanks, Patrick. And I think you, you hit it spot on. You know, you really see the um, growth and focus by the SEC and FINRA and other regulators. Um, starting in that sort of 2010 and forward time frame, you mentioned a number of the risk alerts there, and uh, I, you know, I would observe that the the exam division has published more risk alerts, special reports, exam priorities, specifically focused on cyber than I think any other uh, subject. And the same thing at Finra with some really excellent reports. I recall when I was engaged at the SEC and FINRA with international regulators, Triosco or otherwise, cyber was always at the top of the list of risks that were concerning regulators uh, around the world. And so now you see that the SEC is kind of starting to formalize its infrastructure around cyber. It's established a dedicated exam team uh, under the leadership of Keith Cassidy with over 40 examiners who have expertise and experience with cyber and IT risk. It's trained all of its other examiners to be able to factor cyber into their reviews as well. Over in the enforcement division, we have a dedicated cyber and crypto uh, unit. Um, so a lot of focus uh, growing there as well. And now we have this proposed rule set coming out of the SEC, which rounds out the toolbox. And so I think we are really going to see uh, a lot of increased focus in the area of cybersecurity. And it's going to be great to delve this discussion into the rule and effective practices and challenges. So I'd love to start, uh, Amber, with you and, and asking you to give us just some overview 
of this rule proposal and what you see as some of the key uh, interesting aspects and challenges of it. Absolutely. Thanks, Carlo. So under the proposed Rule 20649, the SEC has set forth this proposal that would require advisors to adopt specific and fairly prescriptive requirements to address cybersecurity at a firm level. It would require comprehensive programs to address things like cybersecurity risk assessments, which would be conducted annually and potentially more frequently depending on changes in firm risks and, and also even just industry risks. Very specific and, again, prescriptive cybersecurity policies and procedures. And those would need to address things as specific as user security, access, information protection, threat and vulnerability management, incident response and recovery. There are a whole host of policies and procedures that would need to be drafted and would also need to be customized to fit the firm. Firms would also have to conduct testing and documenting an annual cybersecurity review to review all of those material components of their cyber policies and procedures that they would adopt pursuant to the proposed rule, as well as establish disclosure and reporting obligations, especially in the event of a cyber incident, which we'll get into a little bit later today. And similar to other rule Rules that the Commission has proposed recently, there would be additional books and records obligations that advisors would need to update to make sure that they're maintaining good records of all of the requirements under the proposed rule. And one additional thing, too, just aside from Rule, rule 20649, the SEC in October of last year also proposed the outsourcing key service provider proposal, which again, we'll, we'll discuss that one later today as well, but it establishes specific requirements for vendor due diligence. So one quick kind of follow-up question there, Amber, and, and I know we're still kind of talking high level and we're going to get into the, the weeds later, but can you talk at all about, or in, in some of those examples you talked about, right, like the annual cyber risk assessment, some of the different testing that you need to do, some of the different disclosures and reporting, the kind of broader thought or premise here that we talked about in the beginning, right, that there's a bit, been a bit of a shift in how the regulators view this. And, and do, do you certainly see that kind of emblematic in the rulemaking itself, where it, it does feel like we are going to be moving from a much more principles-based regime to more of a kind of very prescriptive or, or rule-based uh, uh, you know, framework? Absolutely. I think you can look at the evolution of regulatory expectations and see that over the years, the SEC has become more and more prescriptive. We've moved from the system where we've, even now, we only have a couple of regulatory requirements that really hit on cybersecurity with regulation SID and regulation SP and, you know, looking at risk alerts and things like that. But we don't really have a comprehensive set of rules for investment advisors to follow with respect to cybersecurity. So not only is the SEC now proposing to have such a rule, the rule's very prescriptive and would require advisors to take specific steps. One other item, and, and maybe I think it'd be good, in addition to talking about the 20649, what do you think is happening with the idea that they, they proposed the rule in February of last year, but then 
they and they had a comment period went through the comment period took it back you know i am took it back i've been talking about different things and then they they reopened the the comment period can you talk to me a little bit about why you think that happened do you think it was because some of the reaction from the industry was so strong and, and visceral in that regard or what, what are some of your general thoughts there well the sec has been really active in releasing proposed rules to address cybersecurity with Rule 20649, Rule 10, which we'll also discuss later today, and then also the outsourcing service provider rule as well. And so given the similarity of these proposals, it made sense for the commission to, to reopen those comment periods so that the commission could review comments collectively and also so that industry participants would have the opportunity to provide comments in the context of having all of the rules together. Um, and what is notable too, the commission did note when they reopened the comment period for 20649, that it was providing that opportunity in light of the regulatory developments, um, citing the proposed rule 10 and outsourcing rule, as well as the recent proposed amendments to regulation SP. Amber, maybe you could share some of the, uh, you just talked about similarities and differences Maybe you could delve a little deeper into those uh, between these two rule sets. And then, Mike, it would be great to pull you in and get your perspective on uh, how you're thinking about those, particularly with regard to impact to clients. Absolutely. One helpful thing to note here is that there are a lot of similarities in the proposed Rule 10 as well as the proposed Rule 20649, which is helpful especially for dual registrants that will be required to comply with both. Both of the proposed rules would require documentation and firms to adopt very specific cybersecurity policies and procedures to address risk and to also document those risk reviews annually. Both proposals also have significant notification requirements, which is something that regulators are, are receiving a lot of comments on as firms are concerned about expectations and, and turnaround times with those notice requirements. Mike, you want to share some of your perspectives yeah. there? Sure, sure. So happy to chime in. You know, I think one thing I wanted to just, you know, kind of extend is Patrick mentioned earlier around, you know, the commission going from like principles-based to rule-based and, you know, Amber mentioned about how these rules are prescriptive. I think one thing to keep in mind is that, you know, while these rules are prescriptive, they shouldn't really come as a surprise to advisors, right, and broker dealers and those affected parties only because the SEC has for years, you know, laid out various alerts and various cybersecurity guidance. So while the commission is definitely getting more prescriptive and requiring more detailed, you know, documentation and evidencing and making sure that your program you know, becomes part of your books and records. I think the principles that we've seen, you know, the SEC come out with on these rules are really just an extension, a culmination of what we've experienced through the guidance, you know, over the past, I'm going to say, you know, roughly, you know, 10 years or so. So when you think about performing risk assessments, right, understanding the threat landscape and vulnerability management, the focus of the commission on protecting customer, right, and invested data, all of those, you know, components and, and tenants have really been laid out there over time. So firms that have really listened to the commission um, over the years and have taken the alert seriously really should be well positioned 
coming into the onset of the rule. Clearly, they're going to have to be very specific, you know, things that the firms will need to do with respect to policies and procedures and how they document it. But, you know, if you've embraced, if you will, cybersecurity and started to put, put a program in place that addressed these issues, you know, there should be more of an, hopefully an adjustment in terms of putting a program in place versus what I would like to say, you know, is is a heavy lift. And, you know, I think when you think about some of the things that the commission has done with respect to cyber, you know, it's not something what I would say, you know, is 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 revolutionary in terms of what they're asking for, what they're asking for around risk assessments and, you know, I think, you know, user security and access, protecting your key information, you know, penetration testing, responding to incidents and documenting that. Those are are, are really I would say good components of really any good cybersecurity program that almost any firm should be taking on. The SEC has just, you know, brought it to light, you know, through through guidance and and now in a rule. Um, and I think that, you know, to Amber's point about opening up the comment period, because we see multiple rules that cover similar topics, you know, I do think it, it, it was wise for it to be opened to understand the feedback because you are going to have, you know, many firms that might be uh, where the rules may, multiple rules may, rule sets may apply. So just to get that feedback, you know, so firms are able to synergize their programs in terms of how they, you know, document their policies and procedures. I think, you know, the big area of differences and we'll dive into that in a little bit is disclosure around incident reporting. I think when I look at the rules and, you know, what are the similarities? If an incident happens, you need to disclose it, right? But I think it almost stops there. After that, the time periods to disclose, you know, how you disclose the detail of disclosures, you know, can vary. And, you know, hopefully we'll see some synergies around that to make it easier for firms to really support, you know, the commission and the commission setting out all these different rule sets. It's a great point, Mike. You know, one of the things, um, Patrick and Amber, that uh, we always think about is the SEC's exam program risk alerts, which are really helpful in the cyber area. They've been like focused on specific topics. But if you go to the website for the listeners, right next to the risk alert tab, you'll see a special reports tab. And the exam division took a very unusual step, I think it was in 2021, to write a very extensive uh, special report on cyber effective practices they covered the key elements of a program, the governance, you know, expectations, reporting, monitoring, testing. Um, so if anyone hasn't seen that, it's a really valuable resource to help you. So one of the things that I, you, you just mentioned something, Mike, and I think it's a great point. I'd love to, <laughs> I'd love to dig in on it a little bit with you, which is that notification requirement. Right. And, and you, you mentioned it there, but, you know, but both rules require notification of, of significant cybersecurity incidents uh, that is occurring or has occurred. But I'd be interested to hear, you know, what, what about Rule 10 and their notification or disclosure requirements is, is different? You know, what, what are some key aspects of that kind of disclosure and, and notification requirement that, our listeners might, you know, benefit from as far as hearing about the differences between the two. 
Right. So look, I think, you know, significant cyber incident, you know, you know, I think that it's probably widely understood that any incident that affects any kind of investor or customer data is something that would be considered significant, as well as any incident that, you know, affects the ability of the firm to be able to deliver its services to their customers, you know, or investors, um, you know, but I think there'll be some, and we could certainly have this debate maybe a little bit, you know, Amber, in terms of, and, and Christine is how we define, you know, what is significant because I think that will help determine, obviously, the notifications. Um, when you look at the timeframes to notify, you know, the broker-dealer rule 10 is specifying immediate written notice, which to me means immediate, like right away. Whereas uh, for 20649 for the RAs, you're talking 48 hours. You know, when you think about other regulation, you know, that's been out there, including different federal rules, as well as like disclosure, say under GDPR, you were talking 72 hours, which is a little bit more, you know, um, time. Right. And that was after you define that an incident has happened, not just that it has occurred. And the SEC public rule, I think, gives you up to 96 hours. So when you think about what the commission even has across this rule set, you know, what's across industry standards, you know, are, are wildly different. And then when you also consider that the SEC, depending, you know, on, on what rules apply to you, there are different venues for that reporting, different forms that need to be filled out. You know, it is it, it's going to be a complicated exercise and endeavor, you know, for firms to take on. Obviously, if we get some synergies in terms of reporting timeframes and, um, you know, disclosure periods, as well as consistency in terms of what significant is, it'll make it easier for firms, especially those, again, that are governed under multiple regulation, um, you know, to be able to respond, right? I think purpose of the commission in terms of understanding that there's an incident, right, is to get some transparency, to understand that there could be something maybe more broadly going on, you know, with respect to the market. Um, and I think in order for, you know, the commission to get what they want out of these disclosures, you know, making it consistent and easier for firms to um, report on it, you know, not only will benefit the firms, benefit the commissions, commission benefit those that need to be notified too, um, because there'll be some normalcy around that. Mike, perhaps you could share a little bit also on what are the obligations of firms that use third-party service providers that handle sensitive information? So that's a great question. You know, I think that there's an expectation under the rules that, you know, you as a firm, when you're engaging a third party, that you're getting transparency into that third party that you're entrusting information with, right? Um, now, the, the concern there, or maybe the struggle there, is that the third parties you're engaging, you know, they are not technically required to adhere to that rule because they're not the advisor, yet you may need information, say, as an advisor or, you know, a firm covered by the rule to get that. So it's really important with respect to your third parties, and I think you're going to see a lot of dusting off of contracts and really understanding of what the commitments are from the vendors, you know, should they have an incident in terms of how they need to disclose, you know, to you as an advisor or broker dealer or entity that's that that, that that's required to disclose. So you'll be able to get the transparency um, into what's going on, you know, that might be affecting your client or customer data or something that's significant to be able um, to report. You know, Christine, maybe you'd like to kind of, you know, add on that, you know, given that, you know, third party risk management is such an important part of any cyber program. And it's not just about, you know, understanding the risks, but also, you know, obligations with those third parties. Sure. Yeah. You know, it's interesting because this rule really does kind of press 
responsibilities on the investment advisor to make sure that that who they're doing business with is also effectively practicing the same cyber best practices as they are. And like you said, Mike, they don't you know always have you know the same regulatory pressure on them as are you know as a firm would. But and yet the by extension, you know, the regulator does understand that so much business operations are outsourced to third parties, and therefore they have to be treated almost effectively like an in-house department. Um, and so that's really where, uh, you know, we believe that the pressure of this, this rule is coming from, really ensuring that those relationships with those third parties are really much in lockstep with the investment advisor. Christine, maybe a question to you and then Amber, you could, you could build upon it, is what challenges are there with cloud-based services? And what are the ongoing obligations for firms that use cloud-based services? Yeah, great question. I mean, cloud-based services, I mean, as we can only imagine, so much of what we use today is cloud-based. Um, it's really hard to not have any cloud-based systems in your in your ecosystem of technology. And for a lot of these firms, um, they are smaller in size, perhaps, and they've outsourced certain, again, business operation functions to third-party products, third-party service offerings. And so, you know, it really does become a responsibility of the firm to also make sure that those, again, those products are acting and behaving in the way that a firm would expect if they were on-site and on-prem and inside their, their walls. The regulator is really well aware, right, that this is an enormous technology landscape that is, is easy and nimble and can be spun up quite quickly. And so it's heavily leveraged by these firms. But that extension does not mean that they're not responsible for how those products act, right? There has to be some control, some transparency of that expectation and responsibility, um, as well as the relationship and managing that relationship from, from you know, fingertips across. I completely agree, Christine. One question that we get a lot is, do I still have to do vendor due diligence on this massive firm? Because a lot of times firms feel like, well, I'm not going to be able to really control how Microsoft manages its environment, for example, and everybody else uses Microsoft. So, you know, is this due diligence really required? And based on current expectations and how the proposals are written, it would be required regardless of size. And another consideration that firms should also keep in mind is that if a breach occurs on one of these third-party systems, it could trigger some of the incident reporting under the proposed rules. And so it'll be really important for firms to make sure that they have notice that would be provided to them to enable them to provide reporting to the SEC as required under the proposed rules. And can I just add also to something that Amber just said, you know, many, many cloud products by design, they're created to be open and collaborative. And that's the, that's the attraction in going to the cloud. That's also the detriment, right? Something that is so open and so collaborative allows for a lot of security vulnerability. Um, and so that's really, again, I think where the regulator is pressed to ensure that firms are, are doing their diligence, making sure that their, their products are properly configured and, and locked down in the right way. And, and that they're using them safely. Great, great point, Christine. Um, Christine and Mike and Amber, maybe you guys can share some perspective. We've talked about an incident, right? Everything's about reporting an incident. Can you delve into some details, specifics around uh, when a firm actually knows of an incident? How does that occur? What are the different scenarios in which that could present itself? And how do firms respond? Is this an area where there's clarity or is this an area where there's 
some confusion? I, I could start, you know, so I think, you know, you don't know what you don't know is sort of a cliche, you know, when it comes to cyber, but, you know, making sure that you have, you know, appropriate tools in place that can help you, you know, detect, detect an incident or a potential incident. I think that what firms need to do, you know, with respect to, you know, understanding if there is a, if there is a significant incident is, is really, you know, when they look at their incident response plans and how they receive, you know, alerts, notifications and monitoring is really set some, some guidelines and boundaries around, you know, what that all means. You know, you can think in a very simplistic case, you know, what happens if, for example, you know, a laptop is lost? Does that become a significant incident? You know, let's say your laptop's encrypted, you know, what's the risk and what's the concern there? And I think that's going to depend, right, on the firm, what protections they may have, you know, around, let's say, a device that gets lost. And also in terms of size, right, if you're talking a large firm with you know, several hundred people and maybe these these devices are very well managed and then locked down and, you know, heart, and, and there's really, you know, minimal risk of individuals that might have investor or client data on it. You know, a lost laptop, you know, while it might be an incident, may not be something you might consider significant to report. If you're a smaller firm and, you know, you don't have such strong technology controls in place and the laptop is your head of investor relations and you know that that individual manages all the investor data, you know, on, on, on their device, then you know what, you might have something reportable. So I think it's a little bit of, you know, making sure you've got the right controls in place to help determine, you know, whether or not, you know, something needs to be a reportable incident, sort of kind of dovetailing with that, you know, risk-based approach around what's actually, you know, happened and then making, making a decision, an informed decision on whether it needs to be disclosed. I completely agree, Mike. I think it's really critical for firms to have thorough monitoring programs in place so that they can keep an eye on potential breaches. And then under the proposed rule, the SEC did note that firms should be reporting once they have a reasonable basis for concluding that an incident is occurring or has occurred. And it's interesting that they also noted specifically that that does not mean that they know the incident has occurred because it's often the case when incidents happen that the firm will have some indication that something's not quite right. There's a threat or a potential incident that's underway, but it may take days, weeks, months, depending on firm size, maybe even a year before the firm knows that a breach did in fact occur. And so under the proposal, it's clear that firms would be required before they actually know 100% for certain that an, an incident occurred. Yeah, and I think that's going to be the I think that's going to be the bait of everyone that determines when they need to disclose is like, you know, do I know enough? What does it mean? You know, because once you share that information, right, the, the other thing to consider about is the ongoing cyber threats of disclosing what you know publicly, right? Because it'll be public disclosure, right? You know, does that then trigger threat actors and others, you know, to realize that maybe this firm, you know, isn't so sure of itself. Maybe it has a weaker environment. Does that open them up to even be, you know, a bigger target? I mean, I think these are all things that the industry, you know, the technologists, compliance officers, and, and and legal teams are worried about. But one of the best things you can do, you know, ahead of this, and is also a best practice, is 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 preparing on what to do if there's an incident. 
Yeah, Mike, uh, you know, testing, right? I think that's where you're going here is that testing of all of these practices is really, really important. Firms, you know, the, the best way to be prepared is to just kind of role play, step through some of these scenarios, make sure that you know how you would react, how you'd maneuver, and ultimately how you'd survive one of these issues if an incident does kind of reveal itself. So, you know, testing of all your plans, those incident response programs, and like Amber mentioned, sometimes those have a downward effect, they'll kick off a business continuity plan, making sure that all of those hinge really well together and that folks in those leader roles on those teams know how to maneuver in the moment, making sure that they know who to call, when and how, and obviously logging all of that activity along the way to ensure that they have the right detail for those disclosures. And so testing of all of those plans, you know, and minimally and annually is, is really what's recommended. And we really like to see firms um, having a healthy test plan in the, in that respect. Yeah. I think one thing that's going to, you know, certainly evolve with respect to response is how firms respond and, and, and actually, you know, document these disclosures depending on, you know, which rules apply to them, you know, making sure that they have adequate resources to do that. I think that's a big concern too. When you look at responding to an incident, you know, if you're a technologist, you know, at the firm and, you know, or, or in the security, you're going to be working really hard to understand the impact of that incident, to contain that incident, basically putting out, you know, the fire, right? Understanding what the effects are, you know, making determinations around forensics, there's a whole myriad of things you'd need to do. Probably one of the last things on your mind would be writing up a summary of this so, so the compliance team can then file it, you know, with the appropriate regulatory body, right? And, you know, I think firms are going to really need to think about how they essentially break down this kind of work, right, and divide and conquer in order to fulfill their regulatory obligations to disclosure, as well as making sure that they're, you know, adequately resourcing, you know, the incident, um, the response to the incident. I should say, you know, it, it itself. I think you're going to see a, a mix of, you know, different folks getting involved and firms should be prepared to have, you know, their team ready to be able to, you know, bifurcate, bifurcate and divide and conquer. So let's dig into that a, a little bit, Mike. And then, look, I know we, we, we definitely want to get into talking about kind of, kind of helping to break down e each component and, and what, some of the firms can do to help prepare that. But just, I guess, one one final question here, and it's both a, a little bit, there's an element of this question that is, of course, like very granular because I think there is some specific reporting, you know, whether it's ADVC or form SEIR or what that's going to happen here. But I guess it also speaks to some of the larger themes here that, that I'd like to ask you to, weigh in on and this is I will maybe we'll, we'll start with Mike but certainly Amber Christine feel free to weigh in here you know and, and you you actually just talked about it again because you said like the reputational stuff right if you like put some of those disclosures out to the public then are you going to be viewed a certain way in the industry or by the public at large and, and so I guess part of this is like how will the SEC be viewing all of this information and and what kind of impact could that have? on the firm. And, and I ask that both, again, in the specific sense of what you need to provide, but also in the broader sense. And here's why I'm asking it in the two parts in the broader sense. I was at a conference back at the very end of the first quarter, and there was a person from the Division of Investment Management at the conference, and they talked about the proposed rule. And they talked about how if you file a report that the, the question was, there was a question posed from the audience of what happens 
And the person from the division of IM said basically, well, you can probably expect to be hearing from the SEC pretty shortly thereafter. And they said, oh, okay, can you, you know, elaborate on that? And they said, well, it could be the division of examinations, or it could be some specialized unit within the SEC, which of course, everybody immediately <laughs> warped to SEC enforcement, right? As like, oh, well, that's a specialized unit uh, at the SEC. So again, would just be interested to hear your thoughts. And then certainly Amber, Christine, feel free to weigh in. You know, how, how do you, how will the SEC be viewing all this and what, what kind of impact do you think that has on the firm? Well, look, I think, you know, I'm not a crystal ball to really understand how the SEC is going to view this. I think, you know, it's probably reasonable, you know, to assume that if you have significant incidents and, you know, you're disclosing it, you know, obviously commission is going to take a look at it and, you know, maybe based on how it's described, what the impact of that incident is, you know, if they perceive that maybe, you know, it was related to, you know, some control, you know, concern or issue, you know, that might to get, if you will, an inquiry, you know, from the, from, from, from the, you know, examiners. Um, I think, you know, that will all, you know, play out, you know, over time. Um, that doesn't really, you know, absolve folks from doing the reporting that they're obligated to do. Right. So I don't think the answer is, well, if I'm worried about an exam, then I won't disclose because, you know, if something, if you don't disclose and something happens, you're probably going to wind up um, under more scrutiny. Um, but maybe Amber, I'll turn it over to you for your kind of viewpoint on, on that from a, the right perspective. I agree. I think it's likely that when firms do report an incident, the SEC would be potentially coming in to, to take a closer look at the advisor's operations and any required notice obligations to clients as well. Another interesting consideration would be, will the SEC use this information to check to see if affiliates who were in some way involved in the incident reported as required under the rule to the extent they had knowledge of it. And then likely with respect to broker dealers and larger market participants, I think it could be used to also assess industry risk at a broader basis. Yeah, just picking up on Amber's point there, you know, totally agree with everything Amber and Mike said about individual firms and how they should be thinking about potential exposure and risk with regard to their own practices. But one of the key objectives of this rule proposal is also what Amber just touched on, right, which is regulators are really concerned about systemic risk presented from cyber to market utilities and the contagion effect if something happens there. So relative, related to that objective, you know, you may be the eyes and ears, your firm may be the eyes and ears of an early indication of something that could be broader across the industry, as Amber said. Um, so the, the regulators will be working and coordinating together through FSOC, through other agencies to make sure that the government feels they're tracking and are informed of potential risks to the system and to the industry. So think about it on both of those levels. What's the issues with regard to my firm and how is my firm helping potentially be part of risk assessment and response from a broader systemic risk and industry perspective? Yeah, that's great. Um, Christine, any, anything else to add to that before we, we jump into the, the, the breakdown of, of each component? No, let's, let's dive in because I think how, how we get some of this stuff done will be really, really important to understand. 
Yeah. Yeah. Well, um, well, no, that, that's a, yeah, it's a, that's a great, that's actually a perfect place to start. Let, <laughs> let's begin it. Thank you for that. Um, so, so let's talk about and go through, I mean, some of these different components that we've touched on and I guess maybe specifically let's, let's start with the, uh, well, actually Carly just talked about it, right? The, the cybersecurity risk assessment and thinking about, you know, what, what that looks like. And, you know, we were talking about it a moment ago, yeah, as far as you know, the the systemic risk, but but the SEC is asking firms to specifically look at it in, in the course of how it's the, a risk assessment kind of attaching to their you know specific you know operations. So so maybe talk a little bit about that and and um, what firms can do to help prepare for it. Sure. So um, like like Carlo had pointed out, right? So that the, the meat and the foundation of a firm really understanding their threat landscape is doing those risk assessments. Um, and you have to really understand where your issues and your vulnerabilities are to be able to, be able to understand how to prevent that from being a potential foothold for an attacker or a bad actor in some way. The risk assessments in general, I think, have also evolved um, as a practice, you know, years ago, um, even prior to COVID. It. I think when, when firms had some services on-prem, some services in the cloud, some hardware, you know, in a server closet somewhere, and some technology out, out of their walls, um, you know, cloud assessments were, were reviews that excuse me, not cloud assessment, risk assessments were reviews that were focused mainly, mainly on infrastructure um, and users, right? We're looking at process and controls within an organization. With, you know, post-COVID, with so many products and firms going to the cloud and, and leveraging external resources, um, which has been a good thing um, from an overhead perspective, we don't have to manage so much technology anymore, but it's introduced new risk, right? So the cyber risk assessments extending to cloud products has really taken to understanding how that product works, so that initial configuration, and then how users are using it, right? So understanding the accessibility of the data that that cloud product is holding and how it's being used. A lot of times, penetration testing has also evolved, right? Where we used to look at infrastructure and architecture that we could see tangibly. And penetration test is, testing has also evolved. We are now able to penetration test cloud applications and web applications. We want to make sure that that cloud public services or maybe private cloud as well, um, that those are also really well-managed, well-maintained, and secure. So that's really why, you know, the, the, the base of what the regulators are going to be looking for is that behavior on behalf of a firm, that there's ample risk being assessed across all the platforms and all the products and tools that they use, um, obviously with a lens to make sure that, the, that, you know, data governance is intact too with those products that are holding on to, to sensitive data for the firm. Yeah, you just touched on something that's really cool there about the behavior of a firm, right? And 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 how they are approaching an issue and what they do in particular, I guess one, one way that that often gets manifested is what they do when there is an incident response, when, when there is an incident and what is their incident response and, and recovery. You know, I, I'd love to hear from everybody on this question, but maybe Amber, why don't, why don't we start with you just to talk a little bit about what's required for firms as part of their incident response plan and, and you know, this, I guess with a specific focus on kind of the policies and procedures. And then, you know, Mike and Christine, I'd love to hear from you 
some of the firms that you have found do a great job of this already? What what are how are they doing a great job of it? What 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 are some consistent best practices you see some from those firms? But maybe Amber, I'll I'll kick it over to you first just to talk about what does the the new proposed rule actually require for incident response. Yes. So under 20649, firms are required to adopt an incident response plan, which is a current expectation. And as part of that plan, firms need to make sure that they've got policies and procedures in place to ensure continued operations of the firm and really taking a close look at any of those key business operations that need to occur to make sure that those can continue in the event of an incident. The firm should also account for protecting information systems and data, thinking about access to any key or critical data that the firm would need to continue operations, as well as reporting in the event of an incident. And like we discussed earlier, I do think that monitoring is a really key component here and should be factored in to the firm's policies regarding incident reporting. And then depending on where we land with the final rule, it would likely also need to include terms to oversee reporting under ADB Part C, which would be the document that advisors would report breaches under under the proposed rule. And then lastly, testing of the plan. It's really key to go through at least annually, make sure that all of the duties are specified and make sense based on the firm's current roles and responsibilities, check to make sure that the, the plan is functioning as expected, and make any updates that are needed. One way that we see a lot of firms test their incident response plans would be through a tabletop exercise, which is a great process to just walk through a potential incident. You can have had this conducted by a facilitating firm, or if you've got expertise in-house, you could do it in-house as well. But just to take the time to meet as a response team, walk through all those critical steps and make sure that your plan reflects what you would do in reality when responding to an incident. I was just going to jump on the, the testing aspect. Amber's, you know, so correct in that. I think, you know, practicing, you know, my, my kids' first grade school teacher used to always say practice makes perfect, but right. The idea is that practicing and testing some of those uh, scenarios, as I mentioned earlier, is really where um, a firm is going to divulge whether or not they have issues or problems in, in accomplishing an incident. You know, a lot of times uh, tabletops are a fantastic tool for doing that, like she mentioned. And I think that what's interesting about doing this year over year, some people might feel that it's an exhaustive behavior, but the reality is that the cyber landscape changes so often. So a lot of times those incident response plans, which, you know, in our line of work, we like to call a little bit of a playbook, helps guide that incident response team through the issue. But those issues can vary over time, right? We want to see nuanced scenarios being introduced into the environment. Firms should really challenge themselves to think outside that box, right? It's not just a ransomware uh, incident. How did ransomware get in here? It's usually a phishing email. We want to practice a scenario where a phishing email, you know, turns into a big, hairy problem, right? We want to understand what that is and how that can actually um, affect a firm. And so you really wouldn't get that experience unless you're really sitting around a table with the incident response team, stepping through an issue, talking about what they would do if and when something like this does happen. Yeah, just to add to that, um, I think it was like a Mike Tyson quote, right? 
you know, he said everybody has a plan, right, until they get punched in the mouth. Um, <laughs> and, you know, we, we could chuckle about that, but I think that's absolutely true. You know, you can write down everything and try to lay it out, you know, as best possible. But until you actually, you know, simulate an incident or, you know, firms that have gone through one, really only, you know, then you realize that maybe things aren't going to go exactly, you know, as expected. That's why, you know, when it comes to that planning, it's hugely important, you know, to make sure that, you know, anyone and everything that's part of your incident response, you know, is available and teed up, you know, for example, your cybersecurity insurance, if you have it, making sure that your plan aligns with your cyber insurance provider so you can work lockstep with them, that you have the appropriate legal, you know, resources available to you, right, that can help you navigate the incident, public relations and, and, and other firms that can help you notify forensics firms, you know, to do investigations, you know, bringing in law enforcement is something that you'll need to make a determination on. So, you know, how do you go about, you know, how do you go about contacting them? So, you know, defining all these roles and responsibilities, you know, is really important. And, you know, as Christine said, the threat landscape is always changing. I mean, one of the co most common things you see, you know, is ransomware, right? And, you know, when you think about ransomware and how it basically is to contaminate systems and, and, and force you into some sort of recovery to evolving and, you know, stealing information. And, you know, if that information is investor information, you're putting yourself squarely into something that needs to be reportable. You know, th this kind of attack has been around for years, yet it's constantly evolving. And you can test against that year over year with different outcomes just because of the evolution. So staying on top of that, you know, documenting the plans and, and, and running through scenarios is, is hugely important, you know, to, to, you know, for preparation. And then, you know, as Amber, as Amber says, well, all disclosures coming, you know, what I see is firms putting together almost like big addendums on top of their incident response plan with their disclosure package, right? You know, and firms now probably have that or should have that with respect to various state and privacy regs on disclosure, but they'll need to make sure that they add in all the requirements based on these new rules that the commission has um, on the horizon. Great discussion on incident management and reporting. Maybe we go next to the uh, another key component of the program that's required, which is user security and access. And Christine, maybe you can share with folks what does that entail, and uh, and and Mike give a, a little bit of your perspective there as well. Uh, I mean, you know, really, it's it's somewhat simple in terms of how attacks happen. It's it's based on security and access. Um, what people have access to is what allows you know bad things to happen. And so, you know, one of the things firms should really, really make sure that is is constantly happening. And this is still something that's always advised and guided by the regulator year over year is ensuring that access is appropriate, um, that it's least privileged, right? If you don't need the access, you shouldn't have it. Um, if you don't need access to the data, you shouldn't have it. How do you know that? Well, you have to review it proactively. This does not mean just uh, we just look at our access controls and we hire or, or fire people. We want to make sure that we're constantly aware of who has access to everything. Again, data evolves. Some areas that may not be so sensitive may turn into sensitive areas. And also, people make mistakes. Sometimes someone is incorrectly provisioned to a specific area. Next thing you know, that area is now a little bit wider and more open than we might like to have. Um, and so, obviously, this is also how a lot of uh, malware and viruses get into environments, right? It's, again, following those breadcrumbs of access. So, really being proactive and buttoning up those security lines is really a great way to, to, to work 
against that. Mike, I know you have, this is a topic very near and dear to your heart as well, um, access controls. Yeah, and just kind of following on to that, you know, understanding remote access too as well, you know, when you consider things, so access to assets, how you, you know, with many firms, you know, everybody having at least some portion, you know, of, of a work from home and working remotely with a lot of, you know, tool sets being used, you know, that are cloud-based is just understanding, you know, how that's provisioned and managed. Moving towards what we would call a zero trust environment, um, you know, what that means is more of a concept than actually what you would call, you know, uh, or or really a paradigm is I think, you know, people used to think back in the day that if you secured a device, if you will, it was good enough, right? You're, you know, endpoint security, but really just looking not only at, you know, devices being secured, but access to information, even just in time access to information, depending on the sophistication of your firm, you know, only allowing people that need access to certain assets or information and only for that time frame, you know, that, that they need it and in the context that they need it. So, you know, this can evolve into something very complicated depending on the complexity of an organization um, but at a bare minimum you know just making sure that you're not giving out more firm information than you need to for individuals to really perform their job function i mean that's probably the, the essential you know message around that great insights um amber the next the next component is information data protection right and under the proposal advisors are required to uh, design policies and procedures to address data classification, encryption, and change management. Um, can you share what's, what, what specifically is required there? And then, uh, Christine, maybe you share perspective on how you're seeing that play out. Absolutely. So in order to address information and data protection, a firm really needs to start with understanding what data it has and where it's stored. And as we talked about earlier today, this has evolved, especially over the past few years with increased remote work. And we've got firms now that have just a myriad of third parties that are helping store and, and manage their data. So it's no longer the case that firms can just look on their network and, and conduct a data classification exercise from that lens. You've got to really step back and look at where everything is housed. Firms will also need to think about implementing a system to track personally identifiable information. And so depending on the systems that a firm's using, for example, I know Microsoft 365, as well as other, other systems, they have functionalities that firms can use to their advantage to assist with tracking personally identifiable information, as well as putting some parameters in place to help guide employees on following the firm's policies and procedures. For example, restricting PII being sent via email or requiring it to be sent in an encrypted email, firms can, can implement protections to make sure that that happens and controls to prevent employees from doing it. Data access and storage transmission and monitoring is another important component. And so for firms to address that, they'll have to think about how information is accessed not only within their firm, but also with vendors, which is easier said than done as anybody who has ever tried to implement a vendor management program knows, you, you really need to centralize that oversight and have a go-to group at the firm to oversee that process and, and keep, keep a really thorough track record of what vendors have access to and 
how it's controlled and managed. Yeah, transmission. I, I feel like I'm going to start at the end here, but you know, Amber's absolutely right. I think a lot of times, you know, we can maybe control our behaviors. We can't always control the outside's behavior. So for sending or receiving sensitive information and data, we have to do our best in trying to kind of lay the foundation for a safe transmittal. You know, oftentimes, you know, we're, we're kind of used to just attaching things to email and sending an email. Um, a couple of things with that, right? The email can go to the wrong way. Next thing you know, we may have a reportable incident um, because someone had access to some sensitive information in that email. Um, another, you know, issue is email does not go from point A to point B. There's a lot of little hops there in between. Um, that technology is not so seamless as we might think. And therefore, there's a lot of opportunity for bad actors to inject themselves along that path. A great way to share and receive data is through secure platforms. You know, we're, we're risk professionals. We're always looking for a way for me to very specifically sh send and receive data from point to point. Um, shared data platforms, secure portals, these are all wonderful things. Um, we can absolutely track and audit and trace who has access to that information. We can even see when they've accessed it, right? Downloaded it and that sort of thing. There's a little bit more control there. Data classification is absolutely kind of a, a main pillar um, in terms of managing your data. You know, a lot of firms are still getting their arms around it. It can be a really, really large uphill task, but at least compartmentalizing what you understand as being internal and external, sensitive and confidential, you know, really trying to make those uh, detailed tags and being able to get your uh, inventory under your belt is really important. Um, firms, a lot of times, are, are really struggling with this. Um, and, and, you know, this is absolutely going to be something that the regulator is going to scrutinize um, in the future. Yeah. Just to, just to add to that, you know, when I, if you think about kind of being out in the field and one area that firms really do struggle with is well, certainly classifying data, but the whole and information, but the whole concept of data loss prevention, right? And managing data loss, especially with a myriad of different systems and, and services, you know, it's something that, you know, we see not a lot of firms really do well. And while certain firms may have certain types of controls in place, you know, the question is, you know, what are those controls really looking at? You can turn around and you can implement, say, you know, Microsoft technology on emailing PII. And that's great if you're sending it via email, right? But if that information is transferred in some other fashion, that tool set won't necessarily work. So, you know, what firms I really think need to evolve and do is, in addition to putting in what I would call some, you know, kind of textbook or basic data loss controls in terms of, you know, blocking removable media and some, someone even say arcane types of solutions is re really looking at, you know, how endpoints and, and, you know, systems can be secured with agents, et cetera. So no matter, you know, how that data is accessed and moved around, um, you know, there's some level of monitoring of that data and information uh, to minimize, you know, to minimize data loss. I think that's going to be an area uh, that's going to, we're going to see that's evolving, continually evolving, um, and become challenges for large and small firms to, to, to implement and do something robust. Yeah, and uh, I uh, not to add <laughs> to the number of plates that you're going to need to keep spinning on <laughs> some of these other components involved, but I, I do think it's worth also mentioning here. And then, look, and uh, I, I know. 
Gosh, this has been an incredible discussion, and I do want to uh, spend some time talking about some of the potential challenges that firms face with potential adoption. Um, uh, but but before we get there, I guess just r- real quick, a couple of kind of quick quick hitters on some of these other components. So on the record keeping front, you know, I think Amber, you talked about it earlier, but you know, basically you know, under this rule, similar to some of the other rules, right? You're going to have an amendment to the books and records rule that's also going to include, you know, that advisors would need to maintain cyber policies and procedures, their their cybersecurity review, risk assessment, form ADVC, you you mentioned, all that kind of stuff. You know, I I guess maybe, you know, Mike and Christine, another couple areas that I think would love to get your kind of quick thoughts on, you know, is, are the areas of vulnerability management and vendor management. And, and certainly we've talked about these kind of you know, generally today and some of the other parts of, of that. But just as far as those components go with the proposed rule, you know, what are some of your general thoughts there and, and you know, maybe some best practices and, and maybe even to tie back to something that Amber referenced in her comments at the top of the show, you know, what about that old third-party service provider proposed rule? How does that <laughs> fold into all this? So maybe, um, Mike, I'll, I'll pick on you first and then... And then yeah, sure. I'll, I'll, I'll touch on vulnerability management. You know, I think, look, that's something that, and, and by the way, that's been on the SEC's, you know, guidance and, 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 and list for quite a long time. You know, firms, well, what they need to do is make sure they have a good Again, vulnerability management program. They should be, you know, looking at vulnerabilities, you know, really on all of their, you know, devices, if you will. Um, there are tools that are out there that can do scanning, you know, whether that's, you know, scanning on your, your laptops, endpoints, tool sets that can scan, you know, servers, all sorts of devices, making sure that, you know, no vulnerabilities are found and that anything that's critical are, are resolved. Um, you know, one of the biggest and most common, you know, areas of, of compromise are on, you know, vulnerabilities from basic systems like Windows operating systems, as well as browsers. So making sure that you have a robust, you know, patch management program, um, you know, firms shouldn't discount other operating systems, you know, iOS devices, obviously Linux and other for, other operating systems. And we can get, you know, super technical here, but, you know, the bottom line is making sure that you've got, you know, vulnerability management on everything that's in your environment that you, you know, you are responsible for, or your MSP and this kind of dive into vendor management is responsible for, that you can make sure that the devices, you know, are are up to date. It's most likely compromises come through a known vulnerability that wasn't patched versus what they call a zero day. I think people have probably heard that term, zero day vulnerability that can get exploited. People scramble to get a patch, put those patches in place. And there's that window where bad actors, if they know how to take advantage of it, can, right? But once that vulnerability is, you know, patched and there are solutions for it, you know, that, 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 that avenue is cut off, if you will. So, but, but firms don't always necessarily keep their devices up to date and bad actors, right? The bad guys will take advantage of those, of those existing vulnerabilities. So that's why patch management is so important and a focus. And then on top of that, testing against that, right? And that's where we get into penetration testing and there are different types of penetration testing. But, you know, I think the long and short of it is make sure that you have some level of internal and external pen testing in your program to see, you know, really test what you don't know, right? What might be exposed by having ethical hackers attempt to get into your environment. You know, you can see what your, 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 your risk 
risk is. And then, of course, you know, I mentioned managed service providers that, you know, have assets for, for, for folks and they're a third party, which is a good segue into, I think, the third party risk management, making sure that third parties are adequately protected. Yeah, I can speak to that a little bit. So, you know, vendors and, and managing those relationships, you know, a lot of times vendor management comes, you know, at the very beginning when you're, you're in contract phase. Um, obviously, compliance should be heavily involved in that, especially as, again, this this rule is about to, you know, take hold in some form in the sense that firms are going to be responsible for understanding how their vendors operate. And a lot of times firms have the most leverage when they're about to engage at first and be able to put a lot of those requirements into contract language. For those firms that have existing relationships, you know, that ongoing maintenance and monitoring of that relationship is really important as well. Obviously, re-reviewing that contract annually, making sure that those SLAs, right, those service level agreements are exactly what you expect. As this is going to affect your reportability uh, on the rule, you know, you want to make sure that if you have to report within 48 hours that your vendor can serve you within 48 hours, right? If you've got SLAs that don't align with that reportability, you may have an issue on your hands. And making sure that, again, as those relationships evolve, if you find out your vendors are also using vendors, right? We introduce fourth-party risk, and we could spend a whole hour just talking about that. But, you know, the idea here is that firms have a responsibility to understand how that outsourced function works um, and how they may work with other entities as well. Um, and so a lot of this, this ongoing management and oversight really comes down to doing that annual diligence, having those conversations with your vendors, potentially looking at some of their SOC reports or SIG light reports, um, you know, any of these artifacts that can help you understand the risk posture of that firm and of that relationship to, you know, to the existing firm. Great. Thank you, Christine. Why don't we turn now to sort of the final section here and think a little bit about when it comes to potential adoption, what are some major challenges that firms face with regard to these uh, these rule proposals? You know, there's certainly going to be some issues with regard to board reporting. We'd love to hear your thoughts and perspectives, kind of what to disclose, uh, what's prompt and rapid. Amber, why don't we start with you and then Christine and Mike? Absolutely. In terms of challenges, I think that firms, especially smaller firms, will have a difficult time getting vendors to agree to everything that's going to be required in order for them to meet their expectations under these proposed rules. I think it's already difficult for these advisory firms to get due diligence completed in certain cases, especially on really large firms that don't post their information publicly. And based on these proposed rules, they're going to have to find a way to not only conduct due diligence, but also have access to information in the event of a breach to enable the firm to report to the SEC within 48 hours or in the event of a BD or other entity that's subject to the proposed Rule 10 immediately. And it can be a challenge to get firms to agree to those types of terms, especially when they're not subject to the regulations. One recommendation on the front end, and Christine, I liked your point about the fact that firms do have more negotiating power at the outset. It's a really good idea to incorporate a requirement in your vendor agreements to require the vendor to respond to reasonable due diligence requests, at least annually, and then to also specify any reporting obligations in the event of a breach. 
I think one thing I just want to just kind of chime in, you know, when you talk about the difficulty it is in getting these vendors to respond, you know, hopefully, you know, look, when this rule comes into fruition, and if we even talk about 206.411, which is you know, even more stringent requiring, you know, due diligence of vendors, hopefully, right, we don't know of knowing this, but hopefully the bigger players in the industry will hear this and acknowledge this and realize that they need to respond, right? You know, it, when you when, when there's no obligation, you know, it makes it easy to not necessarily be responsive, right? But the fund admins, the custodians, prime brokers, managed service providers, all these key vendor categories, right, in the industry, all their clients are going to be wanting the same thing, right? They're all going to be saying, hey, look, you know, you're one of my key vendors. We need to have appropriate diligence. We need these type of SLAs in place because we, we have to respond, right? And hopefully what you'll see is that these vendors will acknowledge it, you know, understand that they may need to, you know, morph how they service their clients and, you know, someone will eventually take the lead and then hopefully we'll get some better transparency. You know, I kind of liken this to this, you know, uh, a controlled, you know, multi-fractal authentication. I think a lot of people know about two steps getting into systems. And for a long time, many major vendors, well, they weren't offering this as a tool set, right? And this even goes outside of financial services. And what do you see? You see more and more firms and individuals asking for this extra protection. And now it's something that's become pretty much a standard, right? Across any kind of remote, you know, remote access is having this kind of you know, second step to verify. So it may be slowly moving, but hopefully, you know, we'll get there over time, you know, as these rules come, in, come into place. Christine, anything to add there on your end? I might even add to what Mike just said, too, with multi-factor authentication, it is becoming very much a norm in terms of an offering on sensitive platforms and, and applications. What's interesting, though, is a lot of these providers offer it. They don't require it, as Mike mentioned. So really, that, again, puts a little bit more heavy lift on the firm to actually look for that feature, adopt it, turn it on, make it part of, again, the usability ecosystem of that product. We're constantly reminding firms to, to go that extra step, turn that feature on, leverage it. Um, that additional protective layer can be really, really helpful. Absolutely. Excellent. Great. Great insight. Sorry, Amber, did you have something else? Just one thing to add, in addition to some of the vendor challenges that I think firms will face, another ch potential challenge is the documentation aspect of complying with the rule. I think a lot of firms likely have some of these best practices in place, but it's less common for firms to be conducting the regular documentation to the extent that's required under the proposed rule. Yeah. Yeah, that, that's great. <laughs> one other thing here and then would be really interested to hear hear some closing thoughts and and, and this might also be part part of the the question here that I was thinking of but the how firms are going to define I mean think of right now what a firm does when they try to define when they even something as simple as updating their ADV what's considered material to put into item 2 of your part 2A brochure Right where you the summary of material changes in your firm's ADB. Now apply that to these rule proposals where you're defining significant, you're defining immediate, you're defining these terms that are written into the rule. But I think how firms interpret that without much guidance, I think at this point from the SEC, at least 
in a lot of the you know likely circumstances in which they're going to have to make this interpretation can, can be really difficult and i think you're going to have a wide uh, a, a lot of different reactions from firms as to how to react to that and how to define that appropriately you know just maybe would be interested as as we kind of wrap up our conversation and again i can't thank all of you enough a really great insights uh, today but maybe just some Closing thoughts on that, and then just kind of general on on the the different rule proposals that are out there today. Why don't we start? Let's see. I've been picking on Mike a lot recently. I feel like so maybe Christine, I'll pick on you to to kick us off. So I mean, I think the proposal is is it, it, it'll be really interesting. I think you know at the outset, I think we first discussed that one of the issues is that most firms are practicing good cyber practices, good cyber hygiene. Information security is top of mind. It's budgeted. I think that what would be really great about this proposed rule is the, the definitions of those things and having those clear lines um, in the sand in terms of what is actually going to be, you know, required of, of entities. The idea that they will have distinct, you know, uh, no more gray, but much more black and white distinct requirements of, of firms and how they should practice and how they should perform, um, you know, with regard to cyber responsibilities will be super beneficial for all for everyone. I agree. And I'm hoping that there will be guidance that is released once the final rule is proposed or is released. And firms, in the absence of that, will need to clearly define how they're interpreting the rule as part of their policies and procedures if, if there isn't clear, clear guidance in the interim. So having terms included in the firm's incident response plan outlining what types of events would result in being deemed a breach and how the firm will, will work through providing the required regulatory disclosures as well. And, you know, we, we touched on that earlier. You know, I think we used the lost laptop about how maybe for one firm it could be considered significant from, from another, you know, not. In the absence of that, you know, specificity in the rule, and I, I think we could be optimistic that it will be more specific with really nice guidance, but it may not be. I think, you know, it's, it's exactly that is putting in place how you define it, why you define it based on the risk posture of your firm in such a way. So, you know, at least at a minimum, you've gotten your own criteria based on, you know, the, the the outline of the rule in order to make the determination right you know as as to what's you know reportable or not and you know i don't think firms are going to do it alone and what i mean by that is you know while the responsibility of this likely falls on the hands of compliance officers you know whether there's counsel you know CISO, cybersecurity advisors you know outside counsel you know should something happen um you know part of that planning to respond to an incident is having those resources available so you can get that think tank in place. It's got to be done rapidly, you know, to make a decision because it will be on a case by case basis. I don't think anyone can blanketly say, if this happens, I'm absolutely going to disclose. I think to, to take a look at everything and then, you know, rapidly with a fine tooth comb, go over this, go over the scenario and make that determination, you know, if and when it needs to be disclosed. One additional consideration, too, just in terms of disclosure, will be looking at all of the different state notice requirements and keeping that in mind, because if you're required to provide notice to a certain state or a certain individual based on state notice requirements, then chances are the SEC is going to want to be included on that reporting as well. 
who knows, maybe we'll, we'll get lucky and Congress will come forward with a uniform standard and stop all the conflicting uh, expectations. Don't hold your breath. <laughs> this has been uh, this has been great, Christine, Mike, Amber. Thanks so much for for your insights. You know, I think uh, a thought that uh, I take away from this conversation is that this is a great opportunity to just pause, think about this podcast, think about the rule elements that you've heard about, and take stock of your program. Right, and don't don't wait too long to get ready. Mike mentioned a bunch of stakeholders. Go through that exercise, tabletop exercise. Christine mentioned earlier as well, and Amber, and uh, and start to map how you're doing. How ready are you? Uh, how healthy do you feel you are for this rule to to come out? But a great discussion, Patrick. Thanks so much to you. I'll turn it back over to you. Yeah. No. Thank you, Carlo. Great, great closing thoughts. I mean, honestly, between the panelists and, and your closing thoughts there, I don't I don't have anything good to add to the actual content on the discussion of cybersecurity. I guess the only thing that I will add at the end, because we like to make these podcasts a little bit fun. I mean, granted, there are very few subject matter topics sexier than cybersecurity compliance, but that being said, I'd like to maybe just briefly, okay, for, and again, uh, Mike, Christine, Amber, Carlo, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you so much for coming on the show today. Really, really absolutely fantastic discussion. Um, as we're, you know, we were just at the kind of talking a little bit before we started the show about summer and uh, some of the goings on. Uh, would one would love to hear from each of you one thing you're really excited to do during these summer months? And since I picked on Christine last time and Mike before that, sorry, Amber, short straw, you're up first. Well, one, one thing that I'm really looking forward to this summer is the opportunity to connect with friends and colleagues outside of the office and, and take advantage of the warmer months. I'm heading to the beach this weekend, which is always a, a great just relaxation and get a chance to enjoy the outdoors. Soak up the sun. Love it. Christine, how about you? I am a mom of two boys who have healthy baseball addictions. So I'm going to be spending a lot of time on the baseball diamonds, but, but a, a lot of fun. Uh, you know, I, I look forward to the summer months when the kids are around a little bit more and a um, little family vacation. So really excited for that. Thank you so much for having us. That's great. Mike. Yeah, so a little fun fact about ACA Group um, is that, you know, we, we take the week, July 4th week off. It's like a kind of a company, you know, we call it RR&R. I forget what the acronym means, actually. Um, Best but, you for know, charge, think, renew, Mike. Come th on. Thank you, Carlo. I, I knew you would know that. Um, I was going to probably get in our role, but... Yeah, I, I think really looking to take advantage of that because, you know, since the firm, you know, does everyone goes on hiatus, you don't get, you know, like when you go on vacation, you would typically get something that you need to respond to. You typically don't on this particular week. So, you know, taking the time to enjoy, you know, the, the outdoors, I like to do, you know, hiking and outdoor activity. So I plan on doing, you know, something up either upstate or in the New England area. So that's great. Carlo, sorry, no good deed goes unpunished. So you have to give an answer too. Yeah, mine mine uh, is is similar. You know, rest, recharge, renew with family and friends. Uh, our happy place is Montauk, New York, in the ocean, and I can't wait to get there and enjoy it with family and friends. Awesome. Thank, again, thank you all. Well, Patrick, you've got to give yours. Oh, right. Right. Yeah. <laughs> Very good, Carlo. I almost got out. I almost got out. <laughs> so I have a five and a, a two and a one-year-old at home, three girls. 
but we will be spending a lot of time water sports and baby pools and all kinds of fun slip and slides in the backyard is where we'll be eating up a lot of our summertime. And I'm really looking forward to that. Although I will add just anecdotally, my, my one-year-old is now, not only has she started walking, but it's basically like a full-on sprint everywhere at this point. So that's just a new danger that I'm having to deal with over the summer months. But uh, no, it'll be getting outside and, and enjoying a little time in the sun, but specifically with the water around. <laughs> so good, good luck to you and your wife with zone defense. Yeah, thank you. We're on the <laughs> wrong side of that zone unfortunately <laughs> but we'll, we'll, we'll make we'll, we'll be all right we'll make it work but uh thank you all so so much for your time today really really absolutely fantastic discussion i know our listeners are going to get a lot out of this and um and so thank you again and looking forward to look these these rules are gonna <laughs> these proposed rules something's gonna happen at some point so we're gonna have to come back on here and dive dive deep into the final rules so um like i just mentioned a second ago no no good deed goes unpunished around these parts uh l- looking forward to having you all back on the podcast here at some point down the road And that will do it for today's show. I'd like to thank our sponsors, Calfi and the National Society of Compliance Professionals, and extend a big thank you to our guests, Carlo DeFlorio, Christine Tetherly-Lewis, and Mike Papasina from ACA Group, and Amber Allen from Fairview Cyber for coming on the show today to share their fantastic insights on the SEC cybersecurity rule proposal and how firms can best navigate the challenges within this difficult compliance area. Please join us again next time on Securities Compliance Podcast, where we help you put compliance in context. Please check us out on LinkedIn. You can search for Compliance in Context Podcast or on Twitter using the handle at CompliancePod. You can like us and subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you find your favorite podcasts, like Google and Spotify, or go to ComplianceInContextPodcast.com to listen and learn more. 